Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this California Dreaming series entitled The Tale of California's Very First Insanity Plea. Last time in part three, with William Edward Hickman's trial winding down, both sides presenting their cases along with a parade of experts testifying for each side as to whether or not Hickman was insane when he murdered Marion Parker. That is where we left off. I want to remind you that most of the details contained in this episode are from a book written on this case entitled Not Just Evil by David Wilson. I developed this script based on the story and timeline in that book. However, the various official records and documents that were transcribed into the book, I have read those to you directly. And another reminder, this episode contains details involving crimes committed against a young child. Some of the details are extremely graphic in nature. They are disturbing and may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. So, all right, let's get to this fourth and final part of this series, The Tale of California's Very First Insanity Plea. In the last episode, part three, I told you that there was a letter that Hickman wrote in jail that was to be read into the record for the jury at his trial. Hickman's defense team would frame this letter as the musings of an insane man. So let me tell you what this letter said. Is the abolition of crime worthy of deep consideration? Is it worth more than one life? Is it of such a widespread or inconsiderable nature that to check its progress is believed impossible or undesirable by the American people? Do the American people really understand crime? Can a criminal help himself? Do prisons help sufficiently to cure criminals? Do modern criminal prevention methods avail the people of the United States of sufficient protection or reasonable security? Has crime diminished or is it increasing? Are murders and atrocities becoming more ordinary and less repulsive to the American people? Or is crime blotting itself out or is it not? Do the American people think they have satisfactory protection and control of their properties and lives? Are these questions of vital importance to every American citizen? Do their answers determine the welfare of the American society? Will the American people listen to me? Will you members of the jury and court reason with me? Crime costs the U.S. much money and many lives each year. Crime hinders efficient government. Crime disturbs the peace, property rights, lives, welfare, even the destiny of the American people. Crime is increasing in the United States. Crime has become astounding in the United States. Crime must be studied more carefully and checked. If this U.S. wants to continue, if the American people want a satisfactory solution to this grave situation, they must reason most thoroughly with young criminals. I want to appeal to your complete justice, to your soundest reason, to every feeling and sense that you possess. I want you to do a great good for you. I want this case solved with the greatest and most beneficial results to society. I love the American people. I respect the people of California. I forgive the members of the prosecution and admit that they have a good cause to prosecute me. I want to help in a way that no one else has ever been able to help you. A great providence is urging me to do this. Don't look at Edward Hickman and think only Edward Hickman. 
Don't look at murder and say only death. Don't look at crime and say only terrible. Think first of the welfare of your homes, your community, your city, your state, your nation. Think of peace and prosperity. Think of adjustment. Think of understanding. Think of your future and your city's future, your success and your city's success. Think of the destiny and forget the fate. Believe in yourself and your fellow citizens for good. Consider society. I want Los Angeles, California and the United States to benefit from this case. I want societies to see my example and derive a great benefit. In me has originated the tendency towards crime and there is a possibility in me for adjustment. Crime has been generated in me. Young criminality has been demonstrated in me. Now, which is better, that I hang by the neck until dead and let public opinion gradually go back to normalcy until the next disastrous atrocity? Or would it be more fitting to place me on a shelf for life in a penitentiary, adding me to the list of Loeb's and Leopold's? I say that either of those courses is very inconsistent with the proper reaction to this case. What does my life matter to the American people? Why does my death matter to the American people? Can't you see that it only confuses the average mind to try to discern this matter? If I hang, some people will be gratified. Some will be disappointed. If I receive life imprisonment, some people will protest, while some will agree. In case, would be the proper solution found? Would the law be completely fulfilled? Have modern criminal methods been sufficient than in making your lives and properties more secure and in diminishing crime? Crime will not stop with my trial. This is not the finis of crime. Loeb and Leopold were sentenced to life imprisonment. Snyder and Gray were sentenced to death for killing Gray's husband. Remus was sentenced to the asylum. Has there been a noticeable reaction for the prevention and demolition of crime through the United States as a result of these notable cases? They represent each important phase of the modern system of court justice and criminal law procedure. Are they separately or collectively sufficient to the modern demands for the protection and security of human rights and properties? Are homes, families, cities, and states any safer or less involved in crime? To be frank and honest with you, in my own belief, I think not so. You do want to save your own lives, do you not? You do want your own rights and your own liberties to be secured and safeguarded, do you not? You do want to check crime, I know you do. Well, if you kill me, you will not be doing any more than has already been done while crime will keep up just the same as before. If you sentence me to life in prison, you will not be doing any more than has already been done while your rights and lives will be in the same and increasing danger as before. If you send me to the asylum for life, you will be following an example, but which has not benefited you while crime continues just as the same as before and is even increasing and even threatening you more and more as each day passes by. I am not being selfish when I beg and plead with you to save your own lives and properties. Do you think I am? I am not being prompted by personal insight when I'm trying to bring about a great public benefit to you and the whole of American society. If you think so, and you do not think so, let me make a complete and open statement to the court. So this is about the point where Hickman's narrative starts to go off the rails 
where I think he's trying to convince the jury that he is insane. So it continues. It matters not, as far as I'm concerned, whether I live or die, only as it regards to your own welfare. I have already pleaded guilty to the crime, but before I die, I want to do a great good for my country and for humanity. I give myself completely over to the jurisdiction of this court and to the judgment of your jurymen. I ask that you will allow me to explain the great calling of providence, a great providence which I profoundly believe has brought me into this world, which has guided me and directed my every action throughout my entire life, which will take me away from this life at the appointed time. Allow me to stand here like a man and explain the whole truth and honesty of my life and offer you the plea with which this great providence has given me to utter. From the time of my youth, I have felt the presence of a great guiding power. This power has manifested itself in me and has made me feel that I would become great. It has made me feel that I would become widely known and that my name would live in history. It has made me feel that I would live to an old age and accomplish a great good for my fellow countrymen around the world. This great presence, and you may call it God if you wish, but I shall call it providence, has been with me since the age of 12. I have felt it and known it, all these great secrets from this early age, and I can prove to you that it is real and that there is a likelihood of this fulfillment of his great work if you will listen and hear my explanation. In my life, there has already been a great range of activities, environments, subjections, manifestations, and accomplishments, all of which have been in a definite pursuit of the guidance and protection of this great providence. My experiences have been such that I have been made susceptible to crime and who have turned away from society. In plain words, life was intended by providence to exemplify the tendency in modern youth to generate criminality and the terrible atrocity of my deed with the subsequent wide of this case are only steps in the plan of providence to bring me before the world so that I could do the great good, which has been confided in me by the same providence, by the benefit of society, and especially the safety and security of human rights and liberties here in the United States of America. Let me explain. I was born in Arkansas State, and before I was 10 years of age, my father deserted the family, and my mother was placed into the custody of an insane asylum in Little Rock. I had a broken home, so you can see, before I left the country, I tried to accept God. And then, it being my 12th year, I received the first calling and feeling providence. I came to the city with my remnant family, and while there, I got discouraged with religion and the church. Religion in the city didn't seem serious enough, and I began to disbelieve in it and God somewhat. I attended high school and graduated with the church. Religion in the city didn't seem serious enough and I began to disbelieve in it and God somewhat. I attended high school and graduated with the second highest honors and a scholarship in Kansas City's largest high school. There was always quarreling and fighting in my family. We were poor and I did not have any money to go to college. And I didn't try hard to get it honestly. I had discouragements. I thought I would get a job and work and not go to school. I tried several jobs and could not remain at them. I became dissatisfied. My family could not understand me. I was disgusted and felt hurt unjustly. I met two boys who wanted to leave home and be crooks. I was perfectly willing to do this because no one cared for me. I was disappointed I wouldn't work, 
so I left home and took to crime. I always felt apart from society. I didn't actually know one real friend. I even threatened to kill my own mother. I hated my father because he left me and married another woman and had other children. In spite of the circumstances, I always felt the presence of this providence. My shaken morality always brought me back to the idea of college and preparation for this great thing I felt I was surely intended to do before I die. A companion and I came to California in a stolen car and committed burglaries along the way. On Christmas Eve night, 1926, we entered a pharmacy in Los Angeles and in a shooting battle, an innocent man was killed there. Here, I received a positive manifestation of providence. An officer of the law within three feet of me and his revolver directly aimed at my conspicuous body, fired three shots, and touched me not even once. This was a miracle. This great providence had saved me and proved itself to me. We continued in crime for a little while longer and then decided to go straight. I got a job and stayed with it for a few months and fell to the lot of forging checks. I was caught but received probation and went back to Kansas City, Missouri. I got another job and tried to go straight then again, but only stayed with it for several weeks and was led back to crime again. This was the only work of providence. I was only doing what many other boys had done, whatever got a straight start in life, susceptible to crime and unaccountable for their criminal deeds. I thought that the ends justified the means. I didn't recognize right and wrong. I wanted to be alone in my next crimes and get enough money to go back to college. I roamed over the East in stolen cars, and the Providence led me to come to California and Los Angeles, in particular on Thanksgiving Day of last year. On December 15th last year, I abducted a little girl by the name of Marion Parker from the Mount Vernon School and held her for a ransom of $1,500 to be used to defray my college expenses at Park College in Parksville, Missouri. Here, I thought Providence made a great manifestation in me. From the lips of Marion Parker herself, I received this amazing and positive proof of the presence of a great providence which was using me for great work. Marion Parker told me from her lips with great honesty that I confess my crimes before this court. I speak the true words of this little girl. Marion Parker told me in that very week that preceded her kidnapping that she dreamed of a strange man coming to the Mount Vernon school and taking her away in a car. Marion Parker further related that in dreams she had many times been kidnapped and that she always felt someday she would be taken away from her home and family in this way. Even the little girl freely told me that she believed the whole thing was intended and if there was a God in heaven, I asked that he would strike me down this instant if I am in the least particular diverging from the absolute truth and honesty, not only in this matter, but in everything that I say here. These matters are of great significance. There is a great providence prompting me to reach each word of this declaration, and the same power brought this declaration from my own mind, and I believe it has brought me to live and do all of these things. The murder of Marion Parker and the horrible, terrible, and simply awful mutilation of Marion Parker's helpless body, a separate deed from the kidnapping of Marion Parker, a distinct crime done in blood with a knife by my own hands, on the morning of December 17, 1927, in the bathtub in apartment 315 at the Bellevue Arms Apartments of Los Angeles, California, was not meant by me, Edward Hickman, but through me, under the guidance and protection of, 
and as a duty to this great providence for the great work which it has been calling me since the age of 12 to perform for the safety and security of human rights and liberties in the United States of America. Please listen to me further. Gentlemen cannot assign any possible motives for my crimes. I felt it my duty to perform for my providence in the hideousness of the affair and its widespread publicity were not intended by me or for my own benefit or satisfaction, but were the works of the powers of destiny. My escape from California, my positive identification through valuable clues which a criminal seldom leaves behind, my detection and my arrest in far-off Pendleton, Oregon, and the publicity surrounding my capture were all steps in this mighty plan. Okay, dreamers. So that was his plan, right? That's what I'm hearing because Hickman was so quickly identified through the fingerprints that he carelessly left behind that what he's saying here is if I was really a criminal, they wouldn't have found any prints because criminals wouldn't leave such evidence behind. How about you're just young and stupid and you suck at crime? That's just as plausible. So Hickman continued. They only serve to bring the incident before the nation and to foreign nations. The entire United States is aroused and interested in this affair. It is meant by providence for you, the people, to the people of this court, and to the people of Los Angeles City and County, to listen and reason with me, and act in a way that will satisfy California and America to the best solution of criminal law and punishment, in this case, would be made possible. The American nation is even beginning to expect that out of this case will arise some great solution. The United States is ready for the example of California. In California's hands lies the opportunity and right to bring sufficient verdict in this case. Now members of the jury and court, and I wish that the entire population of the state and nation could hear me at this time, listen to my great reason, listen to my inspired logic. Here I stand before you, you see that I am here, and you will recognize me as William Edward Hickman, who calls himself Fox. You hear my speech in your minds, and you can only reason for yourself. I am on trial for kidnapping and murder. I have pleaded guilty by reason of insanity. The question for you is to decide whether or not I am sane or insane. I believe that I am best able to speak for myself and judge my own mind and to say and feel of my own true condition. A human being always reserves the right and ability, I believe, to feel and express the true condition of his soul and mind, and knows his innermost parts better than his coexistent. Your duty is to judge me concerning a condition which only I know the true status. Yet only in your own minds can you judge me for yourself and American society. I only say that if I was insane or am insane at this moment, I believe it not and say that it is a marvelous genius straining to keep itself alive, a mighty genius striving under providence. Whatever I may be, I judge it not myself alone, but from a power in me and over me of this great providence. Listen to me now for your own cause and feel securely in your own reasoning that my greatest desire is for your good and not of any consideration for my own life or death. The acts of crime which were done by my own hands cannot be held accountable in my own mind, but were intended for me by another presence to show that in adverse, abnormal American social environments today, 
there is a tendency for certain unfortunate American youth to become enemies of their own society and to be classified as criminals only because society doesn't understand them and they do not understand society. These disappointed, dissatisfied, careless young men are the most dangerous faction in the United States today. This army of young criminals is steadily increasing. It is the product of society's own degeneration and weaknesses, and unless the American people can take certain precautions or undertake new preventions, personal rights, liberties, and properties here in this country will be greatly endangered. This affair strikes at the very heart of the nation. It is of fundamental importance and should be of your deepest concern. The entire nation is looking on and waiting for the outcome of this trial. I am in your hands, and you can do with me whatever you wish. I ask of you to make such a study and observation of me before you kill me, which will help in a new, definite way to combat the spread of the crime in the United States. I plead with you to do this for the benefit it may have to California and America, or even humanity. I ask that you will allow me to cooperate with you fully because I feel destined to help you in this great cause. I am just an example of your own reckless modern youth but I have the greatest vision in that this example, you will be better able to search out the tendency for crime and find a new prevention, which will be of great value to American society. I have always loved my country and it trills my heart to hear the star spangled banner or to witness the stars and stripes in a parade. I have always felt that before I die, I would do some good and Providence tells me that this is about that time. I place my body in your hands. You can sentence me to hang if you think it will pacify those who crave blood. Is there not too much bloodshed in this country without having more? Are not the American people beginning to have the same bloodthirsty impulses that the young desperados and criminals themselves have? What terrible end will there be to society if these savage tendencies are allowed to continue? Public opinion never has expressed the true sentiments of the American people. The American press is responsible for many grave errors in this case alone. The American press tries to educate the mob in riot and bloodshed. The American people should and will resent these dreadful policies. Let me make my final plea for welfare and peace of the peoples of California and America. It is evident that you and your rights and safety are of most importance to you. I ask to help in the preservation and continuance of these rights. Please take me and work with me and let this great providence work in me for your good. Robberies and murders and public atrocities are steadily increasing, not only here in Los Angeles, but everywhere throughout this country. I plead with you to take me and to try to discover the means of staying the hands of young American criminals. Why America, why? My country, your country will always live. Nothing will bring the downfall of this great republic. There will always be a great mass of the people who understand and keep peace and prosperity among us. Don't think this plea will easily be forgotten. It concerns the preservation of the very fundamentals of manhood, which are the foundation of our republic. It is inevitable that the people will understand and appreciate this reasoning because I am not reasoning out of my mind alone but I have been inspired and guided by a great supernatural power in bringing this message to you. Because I'm not pleading for my life, but for the American people and for the protection of their own property and lives. Because in my own confinement will be the greatest benefit to come to my country through me. If I live, everything in me of providence will be exerted for your good. 
If I die, I hope that someday my country will hear from another youth who was destined and guided by providence unto the same great work that I have wished to accomplish. For your consideration and your interest, may this message and plea be dedicated. I trust that you will bear me out so that the greater power over me can exert itself for the greater good for the American people and humanity. Signed, William Edward Hickman. Okay, so Hickman's attorneys want the jurors' takeaway from this to be that he's insane. All of it made perfectly clear sense to me. None of it really sounds like it's coming from an insane person. But I think what his attorney is getting at is, has to do with this providence entity that Hickman continually refers to throughout the statement. For me, what I gather from this, providence serves two purposes. One is that it is something that Hickman can point to other than himself to be held accountable for Marion's murder. And second, he's using it to create this narrative that he was wanting to plan all along. He was in jail. He got caught asking around to other inmates about how to make himself seem or sound more insane. Well, this is what I think he came up with. Providence is Hickman. If you went through and replaced it with his name, he'd be talking about himself. It has this, the devil made me do it vibe to it. Clearly Hickman is articulate and probably would have done well in college, but there is no way anybody is going to believe that he robbed for college funds. Just no. I've never heard of anyone committing a crime in order to go to college. All you have to do is go around asking for money, hold up a sign, that you're new to the area, you're looking to enroll in college courses, can anybody help me? Just ask. And that's just the alternative that popped up into my head. Disadvantaged people who don't have a place to live, that's what they do. But they don't rob to go to school. We know that that was a lie from the start because did you notice that Hickman left out one major detail? And that is his obsession with the movies and Hollywood. He didn't want to work because he wanted to watch movies. He even got a job at a theater and was fired because all he wanted to do was watch the movies. He wanted money. He didn't want to have to work for it. So he robbed and he sat at the movies all day until he ran out of money and repeat. There are no lofty goals of attending college here at all. I also came to the conclusion that Hickman is a narcissist, at least in my opinion. He completely thinks he is the most intelligent person in the room. He's referred to himself as a genius and his genius was doing all the biddings of the providence. In the statement that I just read to you, Hickman said the word I 128 times. He said me 117 times and he said my 55 times. Do you know how many times he said the name Marion? Eight. That's it. Every single time he made a plea for life in prison, all of the reasons over and over again, I kept thinking, did you do that for Marion? Did Marion get that same treatment from you? And towards the end, he even talked about there having been enough bloodshed already. He wants the jury to keep him alive in order to lessen the shedding of blood. Yet, tell me again what you did to Marion's body? Yeah, no. Hickman also takes responsibility off of himself at every chance that he gets. I was led this way. I was led to California. Just stop. 
He took himself everywhere he went on his own with the cars that he stole and the money that he took from people. And I think he sort of placed some of the burden of this crime on the victim herself, Marion, when he told the jury that she had a dream that she was kidnapped from school and she felt that someday she would be taken away from her family in this manner. There was so much stuff in his letter, it began to sound like a broken record. Hickman wanted to be viewed more valuable alive than dead. Well, newsflash, so was Marion. I think it's safe to say that Prosecutor Asa Keys is fairly confident that he's got this conviction in the bag. I only shared one exchange that he had with one expert who was testifying on behalf of the defense. He was snarky and he made no secret that he felt that their opinions and testimony were absolutely absurd. When it came to the closing arguments, if this was a boxing match, the prosecution would have had a second or third round knockout. Asa Keys delivered part of it, but you know, his mocking tone and sarcasm isn't necessarily going to win people over. So they started off with his co-counsel, who was apparently tall, dark, and handsome, and a favorite among the journalists and reporters in the courtroom. And not only that, he was organized in his closing. He went down the evidence point by point, and the courtroom was captivated by his presentation. Unfortunately, Hickman's defense team was not so eloquent or prepared even, really. It probably had a lot to do with the fact that they didn't have all that much valid testimony to back up their insistence that Hickman was insane. The closing arguments on their end meandered. It seemed as though his attorney, Walsh, tried using fancy terminology to make things sound better than they actually were, but he just didn't bring it home. His co-counsel fared a little bit better, but not by much. And a section of his closing from David Wilson's book reads as follows. Insanity is a strange, a peculiar thing. I don't know how to define it. It is like many other workings of the mind. It is difficult to define because the organ that attempts to define it is the one that is also attempting to define its own condition. So it makes an extremely difficult thing to do. But there is a type of insanity, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that we have attempted to establish here. A type of insanity that I think we are absolutely justified in advancing here. And that's the type of delusional insanity where a delusion or a simulation of the imagination, either through mental stress or through the ravages of the diseased or imaginable parts of the mind, is so stimulated as to cause the imagination itself to create delusions that absolutely control the mind and a deranged mind. One faculty out of order, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, may destroy and may disturb every other part of the mind so that a man, while he would have the remainder of his faculties intact, would be so deranged that he could not and would not, because of this controlled delusion, understand the difference between right and wrong. Hickman's attorney also told the jury that his grandmother had been committed into a mental institution at the age of 15. What that was specifically, it did not say, but she was committed, and with that, he was attempting to establish a family history of mental health issues. The defense also made mention of the possibility that Hickman was faking insanity in order to avoid being held responsible for his crimes. He said, There have been some suggestions here that this boy has been coached into these delusions. I don't know. I don't think he has been coached. And dreamers, you'd think he would say this with a little bit more confidence, but that's just me. I know I have not done it myself, 
I am confident that none of my associates have done it. I know that Dr. Shelton would not do it. I know that we did not attempt to coach Mrs. Hickman on any questions of insanity. I will say that. I will say that we did not coach the grandmother. She was dead, I guess, before I was born. Okay. <laughs> we did not coach any of these ancestors. And speaking for myself, I know that I would not know how to coach anyone on the subject of insanity. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we have established that this was the act of not a criminal, but of a madman. He is not a criminal, ladies and gentlemen. He is insane. I thank you. Circling back to the prosecution's closing arguments, Prosecutor Asa Keys wanted to make it clear that this defendant was not insane. His closing, in part, read, I am not going to go into the horrible details of this crime, as counsel indicated to you that I might. I have no wish or desire to do that. When we started out to try this case, during the course of the trial, I anticipated that it would be necessary for me, and I expected to have to prove to you and display before you some of the gruesome details. Counsel for the defendant has anticipated my move and beat me to the punch, as they say in the street, and proved those things himself. Why? He didn't fool me. I don't believe he fooled you. He wanted to prove to you that this crime was so horrible and gruesome that it might cause you to believe that no man in his sane mind could have committed it. Now, those gruesome details are in the past. They are before you as evidence, and you can remember them as well as you can. So I'm not going to touch on them. I'm not going to arouse your feelings against this defendant, because as I state to you, ladies and gentlemen, thank God we live in America. And in America, the laws of this great land say that every man or woman or child accused of a crime is entitled to his day in court. He is entitled to be tried by his peers, by his fellow men. He is entitled to his defense. He is entitled to have reasonable time to prepare for his defense. He is entitled to go before a jury of his peers. He is entitled to show every single thing that may bear on his innocence. And the people are entitled to show every single thing before that same jury that may bear upon his guilt. But from the very first, from the very first time I set eyes on that man up in that jail in Pendleton, Oregon, I did not believe and I do not believe now that this man was insane at the time he committed that kidnapping and murder or that he is any more insane at this present moment than anyone else in this room. Therefore, in my own heart feeling about this defendant as I do, I have no hesitancy and no compunction in asking this jury to bring in a verdict in this case that at the time this man committed this crime that he was sane. Now then, that brings the issue right down to one thing. You have been told many times, I want you to bear it in mind because you have no more to do with the finding of a verdict of guilty against this defendant for the commission of this crime or not guilty of the commission of this crime than you have with trying to stop Colonel Lindbergh from flying to the United States from where he is today. Your sole issue to determine here, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Was the defendant on the 17th day of December 1927 at the time that he killed little Marion Parker as been described in the evidence in this case, sane or insane? That is the issue, plain and simple, isn't it? Now then you know two gentlemen have been called here by the defendant to testify that in their opinion this man was not only insane then, but he is insane now. They tell you that they made a thorough physical examination and also subjected him to certain mental tests. 
I defer to Dr. Shelton and Dr. Skog. It would hardly seem proper on my part to stand here and try to take anything from the standing of these two gentlemen who have been called their standing in the community here or Dr. Skog's standing in the community in Kansas City. I know nothing about either one of them. I have never heard of Dr. Shelton before he took the stand in this case. I had never heard of Dr. Skog until he came out here and took the stand in this case. Knowing nothing about them, knowing nothing about their reputation or ability, I will not say one word against them. But I have the right, ladies and gentlemen, to direct your attention to one or two things, as I have observed, from them on the witness stand. You know Dr. Shelton in his anxiety to prove to you that this defendant is insane and was insane at the time that he committed this murder, took two-thirds of a while of an afternoon in telling you the things that this defendant did not have. You remember he took the time of this court and jury to go into every phase of dementia praecox that he knew of, and from the way he testified, I judged that he had poured over the same books that he said he was going to be reading the night before, and he committed them to memory. And he told you in cross-examination that the principal symptom of dementia praecox of the paranoid form was that this defendant had, in his judgment, the principal symptom or symptoms were mental delusions, delusions of hallucinations, and Dr. Skog said the same thing. Just bear that in mind. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Now, Dr. Skog came out here first and first saw the defendant on the 26th of January. We started this trial on the 25th. And just a reminder, Dreamers, this is 1928. That was the day after this case started that Dr. Skog got here, and he gave the defendant examinations on the 26th and the 27th. And he recited to you and read to you from his notes, and he gave you in evidence here some of the tests which he said he subjected this man to, this man Hickman. Remember now that Hickman was arrested on the 22nd of December and on the 24th when officers of the law from Los Angeles went to Pendleton to bring him back here, he started with his insanity dodge. I call it his insanity dodge, advisedly, because I am convinced from this evidence that it is nothing more or less than a dodge on the part of this man in an effort to dodge the law. Remember this boy has intelligence. Remember that this boy is quite a smart young chap. He has intelligence, and his intelligence has not been impaired by mental disease of any kind or any other kind of disease. He is just as smart now as he was when he took second place in that oratorical contest back there in high school in Kansas City. He is just as smart now as he was when he graduated from high school in Kansas City with high honors. And he knew, ladies and gentlemen, when he was caught up there in Pendleton, Oregon, he knew that the only way he could escape the gallows or the penitentiary or the punishment which the law provides in the state of California was the plea of insanity. So I say to you that in my judgment from that day to this, this defendant has made it his plan to scheme and play this defense of insanity. And every single thing that he could do from the time that he was caught in Pendleton up to this time, everything that he could try to fool the doctors, to try to fool the judge, to try to fool the district attorney, and last and most important of all, to try to fool this jury, that man has been doing. So then Dr. Skog put him through the test. May I have Dr. Skog's testimony for a minute? Of all the asinine tests that I've ever heard of, Dr. Skog testified to them here on the stand. Remember now, this man had been talking to alienist after alienist. He knew the game. He knew what they were after. 
He knew when he was going to be subject to mental test for somebody to come up here to testify that he was sane or insane. So next, he read an excerpt from Dr. Skog's testimony. The witness said that the reason Hickman murdered Marion Parker instead of his own mother was this. In everything, he is the only one of the type. Now he says that he is greater than Jesus Christ. He has a greater message for the world than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had a message for the poor, but he has a message for everybody. And he said that if he had killed his mother, that that would just be a common, ordinary crime, that there had to be lots of people that had killed their mother, but there had never been anyone who had kidnapped a girl, taken her away, cut her to pieces, and threw her dismembered body parts away. In other words, that was done to bring the attention of the world to him. That is what Dr. Skog says the defendant told him, that he killed this girl and cut her up and committed this crime the way that he did for the purposes of bringing the attention of the world to him. Do you believe that, ladies and gentlemen? Have you any idea that the man who committed this crime had any such thought in his mind at the time he took the parts of the body out to the father and grabbed the $1,500 out of his hand with a gun pointed to him and did what he did subsequent to that very moment? Did he stand up there and say, I have been directed by a divine providence to commit this crime? Did he say, I committed this crime so the eyes of the world would be directed on me and be on me? No, he did not do that. What did he do? Why, he did just as every criminal that I have ever known to do who had the opportunity to do it. He took the $1,500 and put it in his pocket. He held up a man at the point of a gun, didn't he? On the evening of the next day after which he obtained this money and he stole his automobile, didn't he? And he took what little money he had. And he did not even, after he committed that crime, with that thing on his mind and conscience, he did not even ride down the street or go to the police station or go anywhere else in the world to say, I have committed this deed because I have been directed by a divine providence to do it. He did not go out and proclaim to the world that I have committed this crime. Here I am. I am insane. I want the eyes of the world to be upon me for the commission of this crime. No, he did not do that. Oh, no. He did just what every other criminal would have done under the same circumstances after having committed this crime. Why, he made his escape, of course. When he held up this Mr. Peck when he took his automobile, he was planning to escape and asked Mr. Peck how much oil the car had, how much gas the car had, when did they need to be changed. He was figuring then on getting away, not having the eyes of the world directed upon him, ladies and gentlemen, as he told Dr. Skog was his motive for committing this crime. Not that the eyes of the world might be directed upon him, but to seek cover so that not a single eye, not a single eye of a human being on the face of the earth could see him or know him. Dr. Skog is the only human being who has testified in this case that the defendant ever at any time had any hallucinations. You know, these are hallucinations when you imagine that you hear voices tell you to do something. Those are hallucinations. Not a single word of testimony in this case other than that of Dr. Skog tells you that the defendant on the 26th or the 27th of January told him that he had hallucinations. Not one word. Don't you think, ladies and gentlemen, that if this defendant, Hickman, had really been having hallucinations, that voice ever told him anything or had ever talked to him or even directed him to do anything in his whole life down to the time he committed this awful murder? 
Don't you believe that there would have been people here whom he had communicated those thoughts to, to tell you about them? As against those two doctors we have produced here, men who have resided in this community, some of them for years, men who have gained national reputations as alienists and psychiatrists, men whose honor and reputation cannot be questioned by anyone. Doctors Reynolds, Shore, Parkin, Mickles, Bowers, Orbison, and Williams. Many of them at this very moment, members of the psychiatric board of the County of Los Angeles. Many of them who are seated out there day after day, week after week, month after month, diagnosing the cases of people who come before the Lunacy Commission charged with being insane. You have heard the qualifications from each one of them as it was given to you from the witness stand. Do you believe that those gentlemen know anything about this thing that we are trying to find out about this case called insanity? Do you think that they know anything about it? Why, here I have had Dr. Williams. I have known him for six years. He has testified on the stand, as he said, in cases both for me and against me. And when I say me, I mean me, the people, represented by me as a prosecutor in a particular case. I have heard him testified in many a case, and I have tried to break his testimony down by cross-examination. And I knew what these young fellows were going up against when they tackled that fellow. Why, he knows more in a minute about insanity than Walsh or I will ever know if we studied it from now until doomsday. And I am telling you, ladies and gentlemen, when I put that man and the rest of these gentlemen on the witness stand here, I vouched for their integrity, and I am willing to stand by it until Judgment Day. Not only that, I vouched for their judgment. All of these men say that they have examined this defendant and they cannot find even the slightest evidence of dementia praecox, paranoid form, dementia praecox of any other form, or any kind of insanity in this man. Now the defendant, through his counsel, has built up here a beautiful picture of all the symptoms of dementia praecox, paranoid form. He has asked every doctor on cross-examination, and he has asked his own medical men on direct examination about all the symptoms of dementia praecox. That is all right. Let him ask about the symptoms. There are many symptoms and diagnosis of the disease, I believe, according to the testimony of the doctors, cannot be mistaken. I think Dr. Shore testified to that. You cannot mistake the diagnosis of dementia praecox paranoid form. Certainly, there are symptoms. The trouble is with the defendant, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it reminds me of these forms I used to see in my wife's dressing room. I do not know who in the world made it for her. And it did not look any more for her than it does for me. But she used it to hang dresses over it. These symptoms, they bring in her remind of something like this. You can build a wonderful structure about paranoid dementia praecox. And then she can build on that form the most beautiful gown as if she were building it for herself. It would probably fit. But if she tried to make it for the little baby in the house, it would not fit at all. This man is not insane, ladies and gentlemen. He is not insane. He is bad. He is rotten to the core. Why do I say that? I say it for this reason. That we find after he left this high school, after he left the parental roof, he commenced to commit very grave and serious crimes, and he was getting away with it. He was committing burglaries, grand theft, and robberies at the point of a gun. You know that is the history of every criminal. When he once starts, it seems like he never stops until old man law in the shape of the sheriff, constable, or policeman grabs him by the collar, pulls him in, and puts him where he belongs. It is so easy, you know, after the first step is taken. It is so easy to go on, and it is such an easy way to make money. They think. They think. 
You know how lawyers are in their closing arguments. They like to drive those points home. And Asa Keys wanted to make sure that the jury didn't just think Hickman was sane. He wanted them to know that he was sane. With both the prosecution and the defense finished giving their arguments as to whether or not Hickman was sane or insane, Judge Trabuco prepared the jury with their instructions. But the most important thing he wanted the jurors to keep in mind is that they needed to unanimously agree whether or not Hickman was insane. His instructions read in part as follows. It is not every kind of degree of insanity which renders a person incapable of committing a crime. Before you can find the defendant was insane at the time, charged in the indictment as of the dates of said offenses, you must find not only that he, at those times, suffered from insanity, but that the insanity was of the kind of degree which constitutes a defense to a criminal charge and which is more fully explained in these instructions. All persons are presumed to be sane. If they are not, then they are in a diseased and deranged condition of the mental faculties as to render the person incapable of knowing the nature and quality of the act or of distinguishing between right and wrong in relation to the act with which he is charged. You are to determine what the condition of the defendant's mind was at the precise time of the commission of the act charged in the indictment. And when it came to the experts and who they were going to find most credible, the instructions read, The jury is the sole and exclusive judge of the effect and value of evidence addressed to them and the credibility of the witnesses who have testified in the case. The term witness includes every person whose testimony under oath has been received as evidence, whether by examination here in the court or through deposition. The testimony of all witnesses is to be weighed by the same standard. The character of the witness, as shown by the evidence, should be taken into consideration for the purpose of determining their credibility, that is, whether or not they have spoken the truth. The jury may scrutinize the manner of witnesses while on the stand and may consider their relation to the case, if any, and also their degree of intelligence. A witness is presumed to speak the truth. This is a rebuttable presumption and may be repelled by the manner in which he testified. His interest in the case, if any, or his bias or prejudice, if any, for or against one or any of the parties. By the character of his testimony or by evidence affecting his character for truth, honesty, or integrity, or by contradictory evidence. A witness may be impeached also by evidence that at other times he has made statements inconsistent with his present testimony as to any matter material to the case on trial, and a witness may be impeached also by proof that he has been convicted of a felony. So the judge went on for a little bit longer and it would ultimately be up to each one of the jurors individually to decide how they were going to feel about each expert witness and to factor all of that in when they're searching for the truth. Once the judge was finished, he handed the case over to the jurors for deliberation and 45 minutes later, they were back with a verdict. So everyone dropped what they were doing and rushed back to the courtroom so the verdict could be read. Extra court officers were brought in to secure the area and the judge warned everybody in the gallery, if you make so much as a peep when the verdict is read, you will be taken into custody immediately. The judge then asked the foreman if they had a verdict and he said that they did. He handed it off to the bailiff and the bailiff handed it over to the judge. Then the judge told Hickman to stand to hear his verdict. The clerk read, 
In the Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles, People of the State of California, Plaintiff versus William Edward Hickman, Defendant, Case Number 32543, we the jury in the above entitled action find the defendant herein sane at the time of the commission of the offense of murder as charged in the indictment. Is this your verdict? So say you one, so say you all. And the jury collectively said that it is. Two weeks later, Hickman was back in court for his sentencing hearing, which is the penalty phase. This is where each side, the defense and the prosecution, can bring up their mitigating or aggravating factors. After the judge was finished listening to each side, reiterate the important points from each of their cases, the judge quickly moved directly into sentencing. Judge Spruko ruled that the degree of the crime in count two of the indictment is murder in the first degree without extenuating or mitigating circumstances. Spruko said, William Edward Hickman, stand up. Courtroom observers described Hickman's attorneys as somber, but they also described Hickman as somewhat amused, for lack of a better word. The judge stated, It is the judgment and sentence of this court that for the crime of kidnapping, the offense described in count one of the indictment, that you, William Edward Hickman, be confined to the state prison of the state of California at San Quentin for the term prescribed by law, which term will be fixed by the board of prison director. After due consideration determines and finds that the degree of the crime in count two of the indictment is murder in the first degree without extenuating or mitigating circumstances, and for that crime of murder, the offense described in count two of the indictment, you shall suffer the death penalty. Therefore, it is the judgment and sentence of this court, William Edward Hickman, that for the crime of which you have been convicted to wit, murder in the first degree, that you be delivered by the sheriff of Los Angeles County to San Quentin to the warden of the state prison of the state of California at San Quentin to be by him executed and put to death on Friday, the 27th day of April, 1928, in the manner provided by the laws of the state of California. May God have mercy on your soul. So dreamers, when we do the math, because you know how much I like doing math so much, from the day that Marion was kidnapped and subsequently murdered to Hickman's conviction and sentencing, it was a grand total of 133 days. Of course, like all death penalty cases, Hickman's case would go into the appeals court system to make sure that there were no errors on the part of the court or the judge or any of the attorneys. And this process would take the case well past April 27th, his execution date, but not way, way past because it would just be a few more months. So when the Supreme Court received Hickman's appeal, motioning for a mistrial, they looked over the motions and the various points where the defense team felt that there were a number of challenges that should be looked at. Well, the court reviewed them all. None of them felt that individually or collectively that any of them were enough to toss out the conviction. So the conviction stood and Hickman would be left awaiting his fate on San Quentin's death row. Hickman and his attorney's last hope is if the governor of California would commute his sentence to life in prison instead. So they turned their sights towards the governor and sent him a request for a commutation. It read, My dear Governor Young, on behalf of my client, Mrs. Ava M. Hickman of Kansas City, Missouri, mother of William Edward Hickman, who was under sentence to be executed in the penitentiary at San Quentin, California, upon Friday, October 19, 1928, I desire to respectfully petition you as follows. As governor of the state of California, 
I ask you to command your great prerogative of clemency invested in you by the law of the state of California and commute the death sentence imposed upon William Edward Hickman to that of a sentence for the balance of his natural life in the state's prison at San Quentin. If you will not accede to this request, I then beseech you upon the board grounds of human justice to take the necessary steps to appoint a board or commission of your own choosing from the ranks of the medical professionals in the state of California or elsewhere of persons learned in the science and practice of psychiatry to immediately inquire and take investigation into the mental condition of William Edward Hickman and report to you before you as the governor of state of California permit the forfeiture of the life of this unfortunate lad. In this connection, regardless of the judgment of the courts of California, I positively assert to you that William Edward Hickman is an insane person. Two, that he was for a long period of time, prior to the time that he so justly outraged the public conscience of California by his wholly incomprehensible deed, afflicted with that, the greatest of scourges known to human family. He is unquestionably possessed of an insanity that is progressive in nature and one that all of the medical authorities agree precedes an insidious manner to complete ravaging of the mental facilities, and finally, a total dementia. No unprejudiced person conversant with the facts surrounding this demented boy can say that his is a type of person contemplated to be the victim of capital punishment laws of California. Your Excellency will not be gainsay to the proposition that no sane person shall be hanged. No intelligent person with a genuine appreciation for the real moral values of human life would advocate such a procedure. I therefore consider that it will highly become your excellency as it will comport with the great dignity of your high office to adopt this request to make certain that a great stigma will not become fastened upon the fair name of California, that in the exaction of the supreme penalty from William Edward Hickman will grow in the succeeding years to be an abhorrent crime. This boy is but 20 years of age. And dreamers, I may have said earlier he was 18. He was 19 when he kidnapped Marion and he turned 20 a couple of months later. So anyway, this boy is but 20 years of age, an age at which the great state of California by its law holds a person incapable of contract or of disposing of their property and many other kindred acts. And yet incongruously enough, that very same law will impute this boy sufficient mental capacity to admit of him performing acts that will work a forfeiture of his liberty and even of his life. Your Excellency is not without precedent in making a humane disposition in this case. In the great Commonwealth of Illinois, a case of monstrous circumstances involving boys of tender years was disposed of in a humane and righteous manner because of their youth questionable mental capacity, and because of other circumstances. I make bold to assert that if William Edward Hickman is permitted to die at your hand in the face of the record and disposition of this case, it will in no uncertain measure be tantamount to both a state and national disgrace. In conclusion, permit me to indulge the ardent hope that your excellency may be guided by an all-wise and provident God in the discharge of this most sacred of your duties, Respectfully submitted, Jerome Walsh. In addition to this letter, Hickman's attorney wrote to the judge, there were hundreds more that came from the general public also calling for Hickman to not be put to death. 
But the judge received thousands of letters insisting that the governor deny clemency and have Hickman hanged on the date as set. The governor really didn't have much to say to the media about it, nor did he really want to. But because the case had been getting so much attention, he did put out the following statement. I will treat the Hickman case as any other that might come before me. I take the position in all matters such as this that the judge and jury and other officials who were in charge of the trial are in a better position to judge what action should be taken than I, and as my duty to the state dictates, I will always sustain them unless some unforeseen circumstances arise to prove an innocent man is being punished. Unless something new that would tend to establish the innocence of Hickman can be produced, I will not consider executive clemency. It is my fixed policy to presume that the courts and juries have ample means of determining the guilt or innocence of accused persons. The notoriety of the Hickman case does not differentiate it from any other case. There were some who took tremendous issue with the way that the governor came to the conclusion that Hickman should be sentenced to death. Even though the jury found Hickman to be sane, there was really no mention or connection between Hickman's mental health and the role that that may have played in Marion's murder. And in Wilson's book, author Ayn Rand, who was one of Hickman's most staunchest supporters, uses Hickman's own words to make her point. Hickman at some point stated, What is good for me is right. A.K.A. He's a sociopath. As execution day was approaching, Hickman spent a good amount of time talking to the prison physician who intended to publish a book about the prisoners in San Quentin. And one of the things Hickman continued to maintain is that it was Marion's father, Perry Parker, who had made the most egregious errors by putting his trust in him. Mr. Parker knew that Hickman was a career criminal and he should have known better than to believe anything Hickman was telling him. It also became clear to the doctor over the course of his interviews with Hickman that he harbored a great deal of resentment towards both Marion and Perry Parker. The doctor arrived at the conclusion that Hickman was a narcissist and he was doing this in an effort to hide from the person that he really was. Kind of like we discussed earlier and Hickman's obsession with the movies. He went to them in an effort to live in a world outside of his own, even if it was only for an hour or so. And that's why he kept needing to go back. And for the first time, it appeared that the illusion of insanity that Hickman was attempting to create began to fall away. Hickman had pretty much slipped back into the person that he was because he really had no other choice. There is no escaping your life in prison. The doctor asked Hickman, why did he kill Marion? And he responded, it was a dual force. I think the impulse to harm anyone that I cared for and the desire to execute a master crime that made me kill her. And then he asked, are you sorry for what you did? And he said, no, I felt no pity for the father I felt no remorse at all. I felt like I was executing a master stroke. As for the girl, she is better off than I am. At least she is out of this world of turmoil and strife. I no longer believe in heaven and hell, but I know we shall have everlasting life. So Hickman managed to turn everything in his case into being all about himself. Not too long after that, Hickman found God very much a thing that happens to people in prison. It's quite common. He spent many of his final days trying to track down and write letters to all the people that he committed crimes against to apologize to them for it. 
and this included the family of the pharmacist that he and his friend murdered when they were arriving in California. It was their first attempt at a robbery in the state, and it ended in a shootout, killing the pharmacist and wounding an off-duty officer. Hickman was also given one last chance to speak to reporters and journalists where he encouraged the media to spend less time focusing on criminals like himself and to instead give the attention to those who deserve it. To work towards the media becoming a platform with a purpose much bigger than his own. Hickman also gave a final written statement, but seeing as I've just told you that he found God, I'll just tell you that his statement sounds more like a sermon. The demons of hell led me to what I did. If I follow Jesus Christ, he's the only way, etc., etc., stuff like that. So I'm not going to go over his final written statement. Execution day came October 19th, 1928. The gallows at San Quentin were inside a room. And even though I knew that, I always seemed to imagine gallows being outdoors. But anyways, these gallows just so happened to be inside a room in San Quentin prison. In order to give reporters and photographers a chance to see it before the execution, the doors were open so that everyone could take a look. There were 13 steps that led up to the platform. Do all gallows have 13 steps? For the most part, yes. I think there was one that had 12, but when a replica of that one was created, it was given 13. I don't know if there is really a specific reason for that, aside from the number 13 being unlucky, and when it is time to be hanged, then yes, that would be most unlucky. The hangman's noose coils 13 times around. In the present day, it's been said that the room where the condemned is kept waiting to be put to death is 13 steps away from the death chamber. And in older prisons, one cell would have 13 bars. By law, there were only a certain number of people who would be allowed to watch an execution, and this would include the prison warden, a doctor, the attorney general, 12 people of the warden's choosing, a minister, and the condemned himself could have five guests of his own. Guests or witnesses? I don't think guests it sounds like the right word. Witnesses. Family members, loved ones, either way. That's what it's supposed to be. The room itself was large enough to hold about 100 people, but because there had been so much interest in the case, the warden decided to make an exception for the Hickman execution and allowed for anyone who wanted to witness the execution firsthand, they could if they wanted to. There would be, end up being about 200 people who could fit into that room to watch Hickman hang. In Wilson's book, he included an excerpt from one of the reporter's articles who was there and witnessed the execution. That reporter's name was Carol Peake. She wrote, When Hickman appeared at the east door of the gallows room, his lips were mumbling the responses to a prayer, which Reverend Frank Fleming was reciting. The moment he entered the room, the doomed man flung his head back, apparently to look up at the scaffold. His head remained held back until the black cap was slipped over it. His arms strapped stiffly at his sides, the young man was rushed up the 13 stairs to the gallows by two guards, each holding a hand under the armpit. The two guards, Charles Elson and Fred Hagebloom, held the youth at the trap door while the hangman, Robert Hagebloom, brother of the guard, adjusted the noose, the black cap, and the straps about the legs. Father Fleming stood nearby reciting the litany, but Hickman seemed to have lost all capacity for hearing or any formal response. Head still strained backwards, the young man's lips framed voiceless words against his hood, 
and those in the crowd, some 345 persons who stood nearest, believed that the words were, Oh my God, oh my God. Then, standing there on the trap, he collapsed as the guards withdrew their hands. His knees slipped and his whole body tilted down to one side. The guards at the bottom of the gallows steadied him with their hands. But at this second, and it was only 22 seconds since Hickman had first appeared at the door and caught that one sight of the gallows, the hangman raised his hand. Three men hidden behind a low partition on the back of the gallows, sitting there in a little room awaiting the signal of the uplifted hand, slashed three cords with their knives. One of those cords released the trap, and with a clang, it fell. The condemned youth, because he had been about to fall to one side when the trap sprung, stuck one foot against the side of the suddenly opened aperture as he fell, and the blow knocked off the slipper from that foot. The body dropped violently downward to a perpendicular position. But before it could start swinging, a trustee rushed forward, placed his hand against the back, and held it steady. Dr. Ralph Betcher stepped forward into a small roped-off area at the foot of the gallows, mounted a little stepladder, and ripped the shirt of the suspended man open at the neck. He then applied the stethoscope and listened carefully. Dr. L.L. Robinson held the pulse. Hickman's hands during the first few minutes clutched convulsively. While the doctor listened through the stethoscope, the crowd wondered what went on behind the black cap, whether the fall had broken Hickman's neck or whether he was strangling to death. Only 10 months had passed from the time Marion Parker was kidnapped and murdered to the time when William Edward Hickman was hanged for it. His official cause of death was ruled traumatic asphyxia brought on by neck compression, not a broken neck, which should have been the case with a hanging. Ironically, Marion Parker's cause of death was ruled the same, asphyxia brought on by neck compression. So Hickman's execution was botched and he suffered for the several minutes it took for him to die. When Hickman was put into his final resting place, only his two defense attorneys were present. The murder of Marion Parker captivated the nation. However, just four short years later, the case would become a distant memory when the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped and murdered. And that, my dreamers, was a tale of California's very first insanity plea. I'm going to jump back over to Patreon and finish up that multi-part series. And then we will move on to the next story. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>